We live in an era of disruption in which powerful global forces are changing how we live and work. That's how the McKinsey Global Institute began its 2019 World Economic Forum briefing note. It continued to proclaim the rapid spread of digital technologies, the growing challenges to globalization, and in some countries, the splintering of long-held social contracts are roiling business, the economy, and society. That was four years ago and six months before the disruption of the COVID-19 global pandemic. Lo navi anochi velo ben navi anochi. I am not a prophet, nor am I the child of a prophet, proclaims Amos. But they all warned us about times like this. McKinsey certainly did. We are living in an era of global disruption, and it does impact every aspect of how we live, how we work, how we relate to each other, how we communicate, how we think, and how we create and comprehend our reality. And if this moment seems hard, harder than previous moments in history, then buckle up, because as futurist Yuval Noah Harari explains, the technological innovation and artificial intelligence are going to accelerate at a pace that we've rarely begun to comprehend. These social disruptions are also impacting the religious landscape of North America, really the religious landscape everywhere. The New York Times ran a series about Americans moving away from religion this summer. The headline of part four explained that the largest and fastest religious shift is well underway. Every religious group, writes Jessica Gross, is trending away from traditional worship. No theological group, age group, ethnicity, political affiliation, educational level, geographic location, or income bracket has escaped the dechurching in America. The data in the US and Canada suggests that this phenomena is particularly prevalent among Jews. We see this regarding prayer as we spoke about yesterday. We see it regarding synagogue affiliation rates among the next generation, and we see it, quite frankly, in every demographic of Jews. We see it also in a shift from a religious Jewish identity to a Jewish cultural identity. When I was the CEO of USCJ, the network of conservative congregations in North America, I spent a lot of time thinking about how these societal disruptions would affect conservative synagogues. That's why I was especially interested in two books that were published this summer, Judaism in the Digital Age by Rabbi Danny Schiff and Judaism Disrupted, a Spiritual Manifesto for the 21st Century by Rabbi Michael Strassfeld. Both authors argue 
that the cause of the challenges of Jewish life that we are facing in our day is that the Judaism of mine and many of your and previous generations, the Judaism that we grew up with, was a Judaism that was designed to respond to the challenges and the questions of the 19th century. It is not equipped to handle the challenges of the 21st century and quite frankly, what is on the horizon. My dad was ordained from JTS in 1965. JTS professor Simon Greenberg would tell all rabbinical students that their job was to explain America to their congregants. In 1965, that made sense. Prior to 1897, there were only 200,000 Jews living in the U.S. And prior to the Second World War, there were less than 200,000 Jews living in Canada. The mass movement of Jewish immigration came 1897 to 1926 for the U.S., where two and a half million Jews fled the waves of anti-Semitic pogroms of Eastern Europe. These immigrants were primarily poor, uneducated, and religious. The process of becoming American while maintaining an authentic Judaism was highly challenging, and quite frankly, that was their goal. Conservative Judaism's tradition and change approach, it resonated, and it helped these waves of new Americans to acculturate. This is true for Canada as well. Our mass immigration to this country came after the Shoah. Our grandparents and our parents, they arrived here with few possessions and resources. They had to not only rebuild their lives, they also had to learn how to be Canadian. In 1987, Professor Greenberg was still telling rabbinical students that their job was to help their congregants become Americans. Rabbi David Wolpe, one of his students, disagreed. And he shares in his review of Danny Schiff's book, my congregants would know as much about America as I did. They would be born here as well. The essence of Schiff's argument, according to Wolpe, is reform and conservative Judaism were designed to usher Jews into modernity. But modernity is over. We live in a new digital age. Fortunately, as we've discussed before, we Jews know how to navigate paradigm shifts. We've been here before. A midrash from Leviticus Rabbah shows how the rabbis boldly replaced biblical Judaism and its concerns for temple, sacrifice, and kohanim with the rabbinic Judaism of Talmud Torah and rabbinic authority. One does tshuva, rather, one who does tshuva, says the Midrash, is considered as if he went to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, erected the altar, and offered all the sacrifices ordained by the Torah. The brilliance of the rabbis was how they maintained that sense of continuity to the Torah, and thus also their authority as being coming from and emanating from Sinai. To support their point, they bring a verse from the very Tanakh 
that they are replacing, and they bring it as a proof text. For the psalm says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This process of responding to societal disruptions has happened throughout Jewish history. The printing press, for example, radically increased literacy rates, led to more education and Jewish leadership. And as my dad, and as my dad is fond of saying, it also led to longer religious services. When everyone has a book in their hand and can read it, you can take your time. And not only that, once it's in the book, you can't take it out. It must be read. And speaking of books, have you ever heard of Sepharia.org? Just about every written word of Jewish text in the last 4,000 years has now been digitized. It's not only digitized, it's easily searchable and hyperlinked. My rabbinic library that I've spent a lifetime collecting and thousands of dollars acquiring is obsolete. Safaria is revolutionizing how Torah is taught and learned. Add to the mix Zoom, and you can have a chevruta, a study partner, with any person, anywhere, at any time. In today's societal paradigm shift, Judaism is being disrupted like everything around us. Biblical Judaism was about ritual and purity, Rabbinic Judaism was about Torah, Talmud Torah and Halakha, Jewish law. The emerging Jewish future is about people and their ability to access wisdom and practice to live a meaningful life. And as Rabbi Strassfeld says, help us become better human beings. He brings a midrash on Psalms as well to demonstrate his point. Ha'el tamim darko imrat ya trufa. As for God, God's word is purifying, says the psalm. On this, Rav says, the mitzvot were given only so that mortals may be purified by them. For what concern is it to God whether a person eats animals that are unclean or clean? Hence the mitzvot, the midrash concludes, are only given so that mortals might be purified by them. Now I know what some of you are thinking. No, I am not suggesting that this text teaches us that one does not need to keep kosher. It does suggest, however, that like the purpose of prayer we discussed yesterday, the purpose of mitzvot are not for God, they're for us. The mitzvot are there to help make us better people. Observing kashrut, for example, which is extremely easy here in the GTA, serves as a continuous connection to our people, our Torah, our values, that respect and distinguish life and death. Kashrut is a means to embrace holiness in our everyday lives. We recommit ourselves every time we bring a fork to our mouth, to the high standards of Jewish living and practice at each and every meal. And perhaps even more importantly, when Jews eat, we do so with others at a full table.
Birkat Hamazon, the prayer we recite after meals, is elevated in holiness when there are three people present, and even more so when there are ten, when there's a minyan. Loneliness is the most significant impact and effect of this paradigm shift, especially in the wake of COVID-19. The U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, surveyed the latest data to determine the most serious threat to public health in the U.S., and he discovered that the greatest threat is loneliness. In a national study, 54% of Americans say no one knows them well. 54%. report they feel isolated from others, and 36 reported persistent feelings of loneliness. That number rises to 61% were serving only young adults. Most distressingly, most distressingly, when high schoolers were asked, do you find yourself feeling persistently hopeless and despondent? 10 years ago, only 28% of high school students would have said yes. Pre-COVID, it was 36%. Now, Now, it's 45%. And the numbers are not any different here in Canada, though the research is ongoing in our own country. Loneliness, concludes Murthy, is bad for you physically, as bad for you physically as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Anecdotally, When we ask those under 40 who have recently joined Betsedic as part of our generation's membership program, what motivated them to do so? Overwhelmingly, the answer was a desire to be part of a community. And notably, our spiritual leaders spend most of our time these days in pastoral care and in individual relationship building, dealing with many of our congregants of our community who are suffering from loneliness. People need people. The emerging Jewish future lies in our system of obligations. That's the language of mitzvah, of obligations that are grounded ultimately in human connection. As Rabbi Friar Botson will also note on Yom Kippur in the mezzanine service, This year marks the 100th anniversary of Martin Buber's book, I and Thou. His insights remain powerful, even radical to this day. And as a critique of modernity, they are astonishing. The more of our lives we spend on screens, in virtual relationships, the more compelling his critique becomes. And the more necessary is an authentic community like that which we are building here at Betsedek. Buber distinguishes between two kinds of relationships, I-thou and I-it. I-thou relationships are characterized by authentic, direct encounters between individuals. They involve recognizing the other person's unique existence and value, fostering deep connections, empathy, and mutual respect. I-it relationships, on the other hand, 
are, util are utilitarian and objectifying, treating others as a mere means to an end without acknowledging their humanity. My teacher, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, in my first year of rabbinical school, once explained the difference of the two like this. You go late at night to United Bakers. You order toast. You're very clear that you want your toast dry. The waitress, when she brings you your toast, brings it wet. And you lay into her. How could you bring me wet toast when I so clearly said I wanted dry toast? To you at that moment, your waitress is nothing more than a toaster. That's an I-it relationship. Suppose you were behaving with the intention of an I-thou relationship. In that case, you might have wondered about what the experiences the waitress or the chef had before you arrived. Maybe they had another customer that was just as rude as you were at that moment and set them all afloat. And that's what ultimately led to your wet toast. And perhaps, had you viewed the waitress with an I-thou relationship, you might have responded with more empathy and kindness and simply said, thank you for the toast, but I ordered it dry. Will you please get me another? The use of the word thou rings archaic to a contemporary English speaker, but there is a deliberate and specific reason for it. First, Buber's native language is German. Du, like the Yiddish, is the second person singular pronoun and is used to differentiate from the more formal Z, which is always used as the plural. When used in the singular, it singles formality and distance. One would never use du to address the king or a respected elder. Thou, therefore, from the German du, implies a personal connection, closeness, and even intimacy. I and thou also has, therefore, spiritual implications and can function as an antidote to the epidemic of loneliness. It encourages us to seek transcendent moments and experiences through genuine encounters with others as well as a closeness to God. I and thou relationships carry ethical implications, emphasizing the importance of treating others with respect and dignity, recognizing our shared humanity, and acting responsibly towards each other. Rosh Hashanah, in celebrating the creation of the world, the creation of humanity, emphasizes the same ethical implications. A well-known midrash asks, why did God create humanity from a single Adam? The answer is simple and profound. So no person can say to the other, my ancestor is greater than your ancestor. We all come from the same source. We all share the same humanity and we all share the same divinity. To take this idea seriously as a response to the disruption of our time and the loneliness that is plaguing society, it's crucial to encourage genuine and empathetic interactions with others and to strive to see and acknowledge this unique humanity in every person we encounter. 
whether in personal relationships, at work, or everyday interactions, even at United Bakers. We have to avoid reducing people to mere objects or means to an end, I it relationships, and instead aim for respectful connections, I thou relationships. We have to recognize that everyone, everyone has their struggles, experiences, and stories. Adopting an I thou attitude can cultivate more profound empathy and compassion toward others, leading to our more, towards a more compassionate society. As COVID showed us, while technology can bring us together in times of, tri of trouble, it can lead to shallow interactions and dehumanization. We must be more mindful of how we use technology and social media when we connect with each other. And we should always strive for meaningful connections with people rather than superficial ones through screens. Yes, yes, we are living in a time of disruption and it is impacting every aspect of our lives and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. The impact as we've discussed this morning is not always positive or easy. And yet, and yet, Jewish wisdom, ancient, modern, and contemporary, can provide us with guidance in how to navigate the changes we are experiencing towards living a life that matters. Buber, in presenting I and thou relationships as an ethical and transcendent imperative, provides us with a roadmap on how to live our best lives, which start with the people in front of you, the people behind you, the people to your sides. At Betzedek, this is how we understand our purpose as a sacred community. We search to build I and thou relationships with each other and with God. During this time of disruption, of moving to the digital age, one thing we can always count on, one thing that will always bring us joy and solace are our relationships. That's what endures, me door la door, from generation to generation. We're gonna turn back to our Maxarim, page 140. Someone once cried to God, Adonai, the world is in such a mess. Everything seems wrong. Why don't, you why don't you send someone to help change the world? The voice of Adonai replied, I did send someone. I sent you. We pray for life. We ask God for a year of health and happiness. We cannot merely ask. Tell the Almighty, tell the world, tell yourself, send me. Hinani, shalachni, here I am, send me. Page 140.